You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Find Your Voice. My name is Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast in which we discuss policy issues affecting Goldstein and Australia. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, this is the Bunwarung peoples of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present on unceded Aboriginal land. My guest today is Andrew Lee, an economist and Labor Member of Parliament who was elected in 2010. He's the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, among other things, and has also written several books covering various themes, mainly focusing on economic, social and political issues. They include Disconnected, which explores the decline in various forms of social connection, including family ties, civic participation and neighbourhood relationships, Battlers and Billionaires, looking at income inequality in Australia, and Reconnected, examining the disconnect in communities and looking at how to rebuild social connection, including the role of philanthropy, arguing that while government and policy have a role in enhancing community connectivity and inclusiveness, individual and corporate acts of generosity also have a crucial part to play. Thanks for joining us today, Andrew. Real pleasure, Zoe. Uh, Great to reconnect with you. And uh, I'm on Ngunnawal land, so let me to acknowledge their elders past and present. In your book, Disconnected, you discuss the decline in social connection in Australia. What do you think are the drivers behind that decline? Look, society has changed a lot. People are busier and uh, social structures have moved. Uh, We're a more diverse country and a nation in which uh, inequality has risen. Uh, so, you know, when I think about the drivers of inequality, I think about a whole complex of, uh, of changes. But the changes are real. Uh, Australians now are about as third alike as likely to be members of uh, one of the big mass membership organisations like RSL or the Lions, uh, as we were in the 1960s. We've seen a big drop in volunteering, particularly during COVID. A decline in the share of Australians playing in organised sport. Uh, We've seen a significant decline in union membership since the the early 1980s uh, and in uh, religious participation uh, since the 1950s. Uh, So right across the board, Australians have become more disconnected from one another, uh, less a country of we and more a country of me. Let's discuss the role of the internet and particularly social media in this, in, in many ways, we're more connected than ever because of that. But then that face-to-face neighbourhood connection, as you say, has fallen away. Do you think those things are connected to each other? And, and can you flesh that out? Yeah, when I first uh, worked on this topic in the early 2000s, it was with Robert Putnam, who just brought out Bowling Alone. And his question then was whether the internet would be more like a telephone that connected people or a television that drew people away from one another. I think now it's pretty clear that the main effect of the internet is more like a TV than a telephone, uh, and that's also true of technologies such as gaming. Uh, the endless scroll feature, the uh, attractiveness of the like button, all of these things are built by savvy psychologists in order to suck maximum amounts of our time. And while the internet can be useful for joining up fragmented communities, uh, think about the value of the internet to a 
kid growing up trans in regional Australia, uh, its predominant effect has been to take away from face-to-face interactions. I want to go to COVID as well, which you mentioned in your, your first answer, and just sort of drill down into the upsides and downsides of COVID, if I could call it that. In, in many ways, in some communities, I feel that it actually drew people together in a way that they hadn't been for some time because people were confined, particularly here in Melbourne, to particular geographic areas. and. I've often reflected on my own campaign for the 2022 election and whether COVID was actually a, a positive influence on the way that people engaged with my campaign because they were looking inward at their own community more than they might have been previously. Yes, that's certainly true. There, uh, there were ways in which people engaged early on, particularly those mutual aid groups or online, uh, the uh, Catherine Barnett's uh, Facebook pandemic page, which uh, brought out stories of goodness in the local community. Uh, But as time went on, I think people got out of the habit of uh, engaging in person. Uh, This has been a big challenge for religious communities, uh, which have found that uh, uh, when they switched to doing services online, uh, many people then didn't want to come back. And some of those communities are now quite deliberately turning off the online opportunity because they want people to attend in person. Uh, we see too, you know, other uh, organisations such as uh, political parties or uh, volunteering groups, uh, where the habit of attending meetings was broken by COVID, uh, and people haven't really gotten back into the swing of things in the same way. We still see those volunteering statistics down, for example, they were declining a little bit before COVID, uh, but the big whack from COVID has uh, largely not been uh, recovered from. And what about the? sort of tendency of modern society towards perpetual busyness. I think back to growing up in the 70s, seems like there was a lot more time to just hang out, play sport, go for a walk and perhaps attend a community meeting or go to church or which, whichever of those suited your life. Now everything's stacked in uh, to such a degree that I wonder if that's a simple driver of people not engaging as much. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I always try not to respond, I'm busy, when people ask how you are, uh, ever since someone described it to, to me as being a boast hidden inside a complaint. Uh, mm-hmm. I do feel as though there is a there is a privilege to have a lot on in your life and to uh, to, to be in demand, uh, and it's, uh, it's better than the alternative. Uh, people who are disconnected from society and socially isolated uh, would often love to be to have the opportunity to be busy. Uh, but we do schedule more activities into our kids' lives. I think about the number of activities my kids do over a, a weekend, uh, and it's tangibly more than would have been the case for me and my mates uh, growing up in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, I think, too, of the way in which a constant demand from for online attention makes us feel uh, busy all the time. Uh, how do I get to, get, get to finish the inbox? Uh, this is uh, an issue that the writer Cal Newport has drawn attention to in the context of productivity, saying that the typical office worker has now become effectively uh, a packet switcher, just constantly answering email with tasks broken up into pieces that are too small to allow them to perform the sort of deep work that is emotionally satisfying. Uh, that's not exactly an issue of community connection, but I think it does go to the ramifications of some of these technologies on our society. So I want to get to 
what sort of impact this disconnection is having in various areas and what the risks of that disconnection look like. So one thing that comes to mind is general mental health um, and we've seen a, obviously a stark increase in those needing mental health support but also the rise of conspiracy theories and the impact of disinformation and how all of those intersect into the risks that this kind of disconnection creates. Yes, uh, and a range of social media platforms have uh, had effects which are problematic right across politics and society. Uh, If you look at the work of uh, Jonathan Haidt, he argues that uh, the rise of the smartphone and social media took place in in a few years around 2007 to 2009, and that was accompanied by a sharp deterioration in the mental well-being of teenage, young uh, teenage Americans, uh, uh, an increase in self-harm and an increase in suicide. Uh, those problems were worse for girls than for boys, which is what you'd expect if they were driven by a social technology. Uh, the same trends uh, are true in Australia, although we have fewer surveys. Uh, the share of Australian school children saying they feel stressed has risen substantially over this period. Uh, I do worry that uh, uh, that uh, these technologies were designed to be maximally addictive and putting them in the hands of teenagers uh, is uh, and, and expecting teens to do fine without them uh, is a bit like handing out handguns and uh, not expecting the violence rate to go up. Uh, they are challenging technologies for people to uh, deal with and keep their mental, mental well-being. Uh, and so too with politics where... Uh, the rise of social media has fueled uh, some of the darker corner, corners of conspiracy theories, uh, taken people out of the town square and into uh, little uh, cabals sitting around the outside. Yeah, so I guess that comes to, as policymakers, how do we treat that? And especially, and certainly as a former journalist with a deep interest in this area, especially after what I saw in the United States during the Trump administration, it is a very complicated issue to ponder because of that juxtaposition between personal freedoms and and free speech and the the world of the internet also being very difficult to um, control and manage and the damage that it can do, um, particularly when we contemplate reconnecting our communities and what actions that we can take to foster that. Yes, I mean, I've increasingly adopted a a pretty dour view on the role that social media platforms play. Uh, You know, when I engage with the executives that run these companies, um, it tends to to be on the basis that I would engage with executives of companies that uh, uh, promote alcohol, for example, um, rather than somebody that makes kids' toys. So I think uh, legislators taking a, a robust approach is, is warranted, particularly in light of releases such as the Facebook files, uh, which provide insights into the knowledge that these firms have uh, about uh, the, the damage their products are doing to teen mental health. Now, I've been pleased this week to see the eSafety Commissioner, Julian Mangrant, pushing back firmly on Twitter on the uh, what they're doing to remove hate speech from their platform. Uh, and pointing out that there has been a clear rise in hate speech uh, 
uh, around the time that Twitter has reduced the number of uh, people focused on content moderation. Uh, AI content moderation can't get you can't get you all the way, and I think it's fanciful to imagine that you can take humans out of the loop and not damage some humans. Mm. If we park the online space for a moment and just talk about what's going on in the human to human space in in our communities, if I could call it that, and again, I will come back to the experience of my own election campaign because it remains fresh in, in my mind. It was a very interesting um, social exercise in in many ways in that thousands of people came together for a cause that they believed in. And I often even now get people stopping me in the street or in the supermarket saying it was by far the most positive experience I've ever had, you know, loved it. And it, it wasn't necessarily to do with the politics of it. It was actually the connections that, that people made. I feel like people feel like they made thousands of new friends um, and connected with their community differently. I'm just wondering how you think that can be translated at a broader level um, and not on a, in a political context, you know, whether lessons can be drawn from that in terms of reconnecting our communities in, in different ways. Uh, well, firstly, I can uh, only endorse the, uh, the the sentiments that people are, are raising with you. Uh, you know, I'm members of my family who's volunteered on Teal campaigns. Spoke about the the meaningful nature of that engagement and the joy they had in in working with others. I think there's a lot for us, those of us in mainstream political parties, to learn from that. Uh, we have big volunteer bases, uh, and ensuring that they feel that sense of uh, purpose and connection from one another is uh, is really vital. One of the most influential books for me in thinking about this in a political context is Etan Hirsch's Politics is for Power. He talks about the problem of a lot of modern-day political engagement being that it's a bit like people behave at sports games, cheering for their side, jeering at the other side, uh, but never thinking that they're actually on the field. Uh, And Etan says, with politics, you need to be on the field. You need to be out there trying to persuade people who have different views than you, which means talking to people who have different views than you. Uh, And and he uh, talks about uh, work that can be done at a very local level. So if you want to make a difference on climate change, well, yes, you could post uh, uh, an angry uh, uh, message on social media uh, focused on a national issue. Or you could go along to your local council meeting uh, in which they're considering developments and push for those developments uh, to have a lower carbon footprint. Uh, that second context might not be so sexy, but perhaps you'll only be one of 20 people in the room and maybe you'll actually make a clear difference. Uh, so mm-hmm. ETAN really encourages that sort of face-to-face, on-the-ground community interaction uh, as a pathway into politics. Yeah, it's a very interesting observation and another observation that I'll I'll make is that I think that there's a degree of hesitancy sometimes for people to step in to have those conversations or a nervousness around how a conversation with someone who has different views than you might go. As a former journalist, I feel like I had lots of conversations that had different with people who have different perspectives to me. So that's kind of who I became over that 30 years. But many of those who volunteered on my campaign and particularly those who door knocked uh, for me uh, were very nervous about the idea of knocking on a a door not knowing who was going to open it or what their view might be. But I think overall people who door knocked absolutely loved the experience because even if the conversation is not a conversation of agreement, uh, 
by and large, they were very productive and enjoyable conversations that gave people a whole range of different perspectives, both the person opening the door and also the person knocking on it. People are fundamentally nice, as, uh, as you well know. <laughs> and uh, if you're willing to open up and share some of your personal story, uh, then that moves it out of the kind of realm of angry talking points and into the realm of we're both people trying to make the world a better place and I want to listen, not just talk at you. I want to go to philanthropy um, and there is a, a review of philanthropy underway currently by the Productivity Commission and I know you have some particular aims around philanthropy, but how do philanthropic activities aid in this social connection process that we're talking about? First thing to say is that they're part of the problem. So over recent decades, we've seen uh, an increase in total donations as a share of GDP, but a decrease in the share of people who are giving money to charity. So in a sense, philanthropy has become less of a mass participation activity and more of an elite sport. We want to turn that around. I'm really interested in initiatives such as Kids in Philanthropy. I went along to Middle Park School in Melbourne uh, uh, a few weeks ago to see the work that they're doing to build up an ethos of giving back among school students. At the very top, we also want to look at the uh, uh, Gates Buffett Giving Pledge and whether we can get more of the high net worth individuals to be engaged with that. Uh, We need to ensure that our tax settings are fit for purpose. Um, They are definitely not designed in a way we would design them if we were starting afresh today. So that'll be another aspect the Productivity Commission will look to. Uh, And we've set a target, uh, doubling philanthropy by 2030, because we think it's important to focus attention, Zoe, on uh, a big goal, Uh, a stretch goal for Australia. But to be honest, a stretch goal, which if we achieve it, only gives us the same level of philanthropy per capita as New Zealand has. So if we can't beat New Zealand, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, yes, well, good point. Um, going to the sort of bigger uh, playing field of philanthropy, though, which is the US, I, I'm interested in your reflections on the culture of philanthropy. One thing that really struck me living and working in the US for several years was just how entrenched philanthropy is in US society, what do you think's driven that and what are the differences in the Australian context? Well, as you know, there's a a very strong culture of uh, associationalism in the United States, which goes back to to Tocqueville's writings in the 1800s. That's waned a little in the US, but you can still see it if you're you're there. Uh, There's also a degree to which American philanthropy reflects the lack of a good social safety net. Uh, and the uh, uh, the fact that uh, if you're uh, an able-bodied uh, person without dependence, then in many places all you'll get is food stamps. Um, so philanthropy needs to step in. Uh, but it's, at its best, uh, philanthropy also reflects the fact that uh, among those who've made it in the US, uh, often the conversation is about what kind of foundation you'll set up and what will it do. Uh, and uh, that's a much better conversation to be having than. Uh, how big your yacht is and where it's moored. So, Andrew, as we close this off, I'm interested in how you've come to, to this position. How is how has your experience in politics, and you've been in politics for some time, uh, but also you have a deep background in, in economics and all sorts of areas, you know, what's shaped your view that has landed you at this position around the, the role that philanthropy can and should play? in our society? 
So when I first did uh, Robert Putnam's class back in 2000, I basically had the view that social capital was an issue for the middle class uh, and not one that, that I ought to be concerned with. Uh, working with Putnam transformed my view and eventually took me to, to the perspective where I now think of concerns about declining community wellbeing as being the flip side of the concern that I've always had about rising inequality. Both of these, Zoe, are we versus me questions. A society that becomes uh, more disconnected from one another, where there's less associational life, fewer people joining, volunteering, giving and participating, is likely to be a society where the gap between rich and poor is rising, uh, where there's a, a larger gulf between the haves and the have-nots. So my passion to build community, which is where I'd like to take the charities portfolio, uh, really stems from that desire to take us to a society that is uh, less individualistic, dog-eat-dog, uh, more of a society that celebrates the community uh, and understands that all the very best things in Australia uh, were made by people working together. And what would you say to those members of our communities who are listening to this who might want to engage with that process or step into that uh, in some way? It is way more fun than you think. Let me give you two of my favourite randomised studies. Uh, one asks commuters on a Chicago train station, what do you think would happen if you talk to somebody during your train journey? Most of them say, I think that'd be really unpleasant. And then they give half of them a small amount of money to talk to the stranger next to them, interview them when they get off the train and ask them what they thought. And those who talked to a stranger were far happier with the journey. Experiment number two, uh, you take two groups of people, uh, you give them each 30 bucks, one group is told to spend it on their own during the, on themselves, the other group is told to give it to other people. At the end of the day, you survey the two groups and lo and behold, the givers are far happier than those who spend it on themselves. So there is a, a notion of the helpers high. We are fundamentally a social species, but we are tentative to take that initial step. We can often mistakenly seek solitude where, in fact, community is what we need. So dip your toe in the water. Go to those volunteer, volunteering websites. Look for an opportunity. Think about stepping up your philanthropic giving. Uh, remember that Peter Singer, the uh, great Melbourneian, who's now one of our uh, uh, my, the world's most prominent philosophers has stepped up his giving from 10 to 30 to now 50%. Uh, give till it hurts, as they say, uh, and recognise that in the end, uh, you will be remembered uh, not for the awards and accolades you get, but for what you gave back to the community and how you made others feel. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us on Find Your Voice. Real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Andrew Lee is the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, among other things, and I will take this opportunity to thank everyone who has volunteered with me and for me in the last couple of years, several of whom are sitting in my office today. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Find Your Voice. You can learn more about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, 677 Nepean Highway, Brighton East, Victoria. 